RingCentral are the leading cloud communications and collaboration solution for today's workforce. RingCentral integrates your team messaging, video meetings and business phone into one application so your team can do more together from anywhere. For a free trial, visit ringcentral.com.au. RingCentral, communications reimagined. Welcome to the Employees Matter podcast, where we bring you the latest information to help business owners, entrepreneurs and managers manage their team through COVID-19 and beyond. Listen in as we share leading edge information with experts across a variety of fields, from HR to legal, to negotiation, to mental health, and so much more to help you not just survive, but thrive through the pandemic. And now here's your host, Natasha Hawker. Having established Stevens and Associates Lawyers in August 2004, Nick Stevens brings over 25 years of experience in advising employers and employees on all areas of industrial relations and employment law. Nick provides legal advice on employment matters in areas such as workplace change management, executive employment contracts, enterprise agreements, and workplace policies and procedures. Additionally, Nick provides legal advice in areas including unfair dismissal, unlawful termination, general protections applications, breach of contract and competition and consumer law claims. Nick also advises on sensitive workplace issues including bullying, discrimination and harassment. Nick has a broad range of employment and industrial relations experience across a wide range of industries, including health, transport, manufacturing, retail, wholesale and charitable organisations. I can guarantee that you are going to get enormous value from this chat with Nick, just as I did. So today I'm thrilled to have as our next guest, employment relations lawyer, Nick Stevens, who we have been referring this type of legal work to for many years now. Welcome, Nick. Thanks so much, Natasha. I'm really thrilled to be here and uh, speaking to your listeners and clients. So we're thrilled to have you. So I am super excited to have you on the Employees Matter podcast at long last. (laughs) We've been trying to do this for a while as this rapidly changing and evolving area to see what you're seeing play out as uh, as a result in the market. And we were chatting in the green room before, you know, I, I think there's a major piece of change happening and I don't think it's going to go back to where it is. So I'd really love to get your perspective on what you're seeing uh, from your side of things. But before we get into all of that, let's start with hearing about how you ended up where you are today. How did you end up being a lawyer? And tell me about your career to date. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I must confess, uh, I'm a podcast virgin, so this is my first attempt. So you're going to go easy oh, on welcome. me. Welcome. I will go okay. easy on you. Thank you. Um, so, how do I start in law? Well, it, it's it's it is a funny story. I, I did work experience with a, a very experienced QC who decided to uh, to ring me up on the Sunday night before me, my starting. In those days, the the family phone, not mobile phone and said, uh, Nicholas, very formal, um, meet me at the airport. Uh, we're flying up to uh, Ayers Rock for the day. It was called Ayers Rock in those days. And we're yeah. doing a mention. So I got to go on a Learjet with wow. a barrister up to for a report back for half an hour's work, fly back. And that was the day's work. So I thought this law was pretty good. And that's the you know, first and only time I've ever been in a Learjet. So there you go. <laughs> that was a pretty good story. And worked the rest of the week with him. Uh, it was Barry O'Keefe who became a Supreme Court yeah. judge and and the like, but that uh, really sort of set my scene for uh, before that, you know, being uh, solving problems, um, being quite a good arguer at times. So my parents told me, anyone, my sisters. Um, so yeah, I ended up um, you know, going to uh, UTS, studying at night, um, and 
you know, doing a fair bit of uh, work during the day because the, the UTS course then was only at night time. So I did work with an employer association and that's where I got my uh, love of um, employment matters. Uh, and, uh, and then went over to London and did a master's over there, which was nice in labour law. So that really sort of cemented my uh, love affair of uh, employment law and industrial relations. I think that's interesting because most lawyers, I imagine, do their qualifications full time and then branch out to the workforce. But from what you were saying there, you did part-time study, which I've done as well. And I su- I would suggest it's very much harder. I used to think that our mark should be weighted up because when you're trying to manage a full-time job and part-time study, it can be pretty challenging. T- totally agree, Natasha. Um, just by way of example, I was doing nine hours part-time for my LLB, my undergraduate. And then I went out to London where I couldn't work and I was doing seven and a half hours full-time. So <laughs> although, there was, although there was requirements to do quite a bit of work for those tutorials and seminars, um, yeah, to try and balance uh, working full-time and doing uh, at a you know, university at night time and playing a bit of sport, rugby and surf life-saving was a, a bit of a balance. But uh, yeah, look, I had a great time over in London and really enjoyed doing the full-time degree as well. So, so yeah, I think there's a benefit for both. I'm guessing your marks showed the fact that you had so much more time to actually do even better with your master's. Well, yeah, look, I must say, you know, I did get what was equivalent of second class honours. So I was pretty happy about that. So with okay. merit, which is great. And yeah, you're right. My marks, apart from employment or industrial relations, which I did quite well in, which is great, and contracts, some of my other marks um, were, you know, to start with weren't as uh, flash as what they could have been. Yeah, good on you. I love hearing people's backstory about where they ended up. You know, there's, there's some people who always knew they were going to be whatever they were. And then there are other people where it's just sort of accidental they end up in that. So yeah. let's focus on what do you love about what you do and what frustrates you about being an employment relationship? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, what I really love about what I do is, um, uh, you know, like any job, I suppose, uh, I'm sure you feel the same, Natasha, you know, there's some things that are more sexy than others. But I think if you do a matter and you get, um, and I know it sounds a bit of a cliche, but justice for your client and you you achieve a result that um, either exceeds your expectations or is close to what you were hoping to get, then that's that's fantastic. And, and that can be either for an employee or employer, you know. Um, we do see a lot of, um, unfortunately, the, the, the nasty side of of things as being lawyers where people, you know, are in a dispute situation um, and, and they're not always uh, uh, thinking rationally and so you've got to help them through that journey. So I do like seeing the process of where you start with a particular problem strategy, you implement it and then you get the results and, you know, I suppose, you know. And so well, what do I frustrates me? Um, it sounds funny, but... Um, uh, you know, I, I do say to clients, you know, I make more money out of them not following my advice and following my advice, where you give advice to somebody, um, they don't follow it, and then you end up somewhere else. And then you give more advice, they might follow it, and go, so that, that is frustrating. Um, mm. But of course, they're the client at the end of the day. So, um, and, and I suppose what also frustrates me, what I sort of touched upon before, I, I'm, I'm getting a bit concerned, maybe a bit more conservative in my old age, that I think we're very litigious, and I think mm. um, there's very much a uh, you know, a take society out there more so than when I first started practice. And I think, you know, people say, I'm in a bad position, who do I blame? So I've taken a bit of a blame society. So that frustrates me when I see people who, you know, don't necessarily take responsibility for their own actions. I think that's interesting uh, what you say there. And I, and I particularly like the bit where you were chatting around, you know, what you love about what you do and, and that it's become more litigious. And I think one of the things I've seen is I think unfair dismissal cases 
have increased 70%, you know, since COVID. And the reason for that is many of those people, I suspect, feel that they've got nothing to lose. You know, for $74.50, I may as well put a claim in because, hey, I might get six months salary. I've, you know, there's yeah, no, yeah. you know, it's sort of not a problem there. So that's a, that's an interesting one. You um, and I are old enough to know sort of sale of the century. You know, you pick a box, a face, yes. and you win a prize. It's a bit like that at times down at the unfit dismissal regime. And being no cost jurisdiction, you, you've really got nothing to lose, as you said. So, it's mm. a, it, yeah, it is frustrating and difficult. Mm. So let's focus on running your business because that's yep. the other bit that I, I think business owners are struggling with in this new COVID world of work. What do you sure. like and dislike about running a business? You know, was that always your dream when you got on that Learjet? There was like, no. I'm gonna run my <laughs> no, own it wasn't. I think I wanted to be a barrister because <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was getting paid all that money. That was all before tele, you know, televisions and yes. teleconferences and all that sort of stuff. So it was pretty amazing to, to be paid for that for the day. Um, no, I did want to originally go become a barrister. I sort of fell into uh, running my own firm. What I like about it is the autonomy that you can work for yourself. You can have the flexibility. Um, you know, you can say yes and no to things, which is great, and not have to do necessarily push one way because a firm, and I've worked in firms, so, but, you know, as a you know, conflict or whatever might happen. What I don't like about it, um, you know, I think sometimes it gets a bit lonely. Uh, so, you know, having relationships like we do with uh, with you guys, Employee Matters, is, is fantastic. Um, so I do like networking um, and I also like... Uh, uh, you know, so that I think also the admin can be sometimes a bit bewildering. So again, things that I'm not good at, I definitely outsource. Like I've got a fantastic bookkeeper who's been with me since I started, and that's probably the best money I spend every month. I'm sure she's happy to hear that too, but yes. it is. And you know, just things that I'm not strength at in your group, you try and hire people who are who are better at those areas. Whether it be, you know, I think work health and safety is not one of my strengths, but we've got um, someone here who's very very good at that. So you, you know, I think you can learn to, to, to play to your strengths and, you know, move away from the weaknesses. I just want to touch back. You made a comment earlier on one of our questions where you work for yeah. employees and employers. Is that yeah. unusual? Do you find employment uh, relations firms tend to focus on one or the other or is it becoming more common to cover both sides? No, I think you're right. I think there is more um, a, a specialty even on working just for employers or just for employees. Um Look, I, I like it. I'll first of all, I'll start with that and then I'll, um, because I think it sharpens doing work for employees, um, although it's higher maintenance, and I mean that nicely, you know, understandably they've got a lot more to lose and, and they're a bit more emotionally attached than a company would be with a budget, et cetera. It does keep you sharp with your skills then when defending um, matters like that for your employers because you know all the tricks of the trade and you, yeah. you know what to do. So I think the key thing is their relationships and uh, I'm sure like any business, you know, I, I would always meet with a client, first of all. I want to make sure that that, uh, that bond's there and, and, I, and I feel like they're being honest with me and, and I can work with the person um, or people. Um, and, and that's very important, like any relationship. And then subject to that, then you, you move along that path. I think more and more so that, that uh, law firms are specialising. So I do get a lot of referrals, which is, which is great as well, from law firms who can't do the work because they don't do work for employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are specialty employee firms, as we know, who just won't do work for employers. Uh, mm. You know, often the, they're attached to unions or, or, or sort of more labour-oriented um, firms. So, yeah, I think there are some firms who do both, but it's not that common. Mm. And tell me, what is a typical type of piece of work that you would do for your clients on both sides? Yeah, sure. Well, I sort of like to split it up into, uh, as you sort of touched upon before, industrial relations or 
or which is collective and or, or individual. Um, so I think we sort of see swings and roundabouts with those um, through my practice of you know, what, 17 years I've been out by myself. So uh, some parts of it I've been very busy in collective, you know, doing um, enterprise agreements, doing a lot of stuff with unions, negotiating, um, having industrial action, whole range of stuff, which I really enjoy doing all that. Mm. Um, at the moment, that's quite quiet. Um, we're doing a few negotiations of enterprise agreements, but they're very small. A part of the business probably about 20%, and a majority of it's individual disputes. So it'd be, you know, employers um, looking to make people redundant, um, or advising on a restructure or advising on JobKeeper. Obviously, some of the other podcasts touched mm-hmm. upon that um, and things like that. And, and obviously, just, you know, simple things like trying to um, determine whether someone's uh, appropriate in, in a probationary period, what are the risks involved, how do you do that process? And then on the other side, obviously, an employer who's trying to navigate through a performance improvement plan um, has been made redundant, negotiating an exit, Etc. So I find that's probably about 80% at the moment. The individual workers seems to be very busy. Mm. You mentioned EAs and, and I thought they got a whole lot of, uh, there was a flurry of activity around them. And my sense is that that has gone a bit quiet. What's your view on EAs at the moment versus, you know, yeah, it's a hard an instrument one. and probably explain it to our listeners that may not understand what an EA is. Yeah, sure. So they're called enterprise agreements or sometimes people call them EBAs, enterprise bargaining agreements. Um, as I said, they're a collective generally, um, obviously, agreement will have to be more than one employee. And they're either done directly with employees or they're done uh, with a, a bargaining agent such as a union or it can even be, you know, um, it can be someone else representing a group of employees. And, and you're right, I think originally, because there was quite a lot to bargain for, um, they, there was a, and there's still particular industries that, that have always had enterprise agreements and so they'll always have them. Um, and you see them time and time again, of course, coming up with, um, you know, disputes and unfortunately lockouts and things like that. So I think traditionally where there has been an EPA, it won't go away and will continue. But I, I think definitely there's a trend where if you don't need an EPA, that you don't necessarily do it. Um, I think same thing with individual flexibility agreements, IFAs, there was a big flurry of those for a while. Um, I'm seeing less of those these days. Um, so, um, and, and annualised salaries tends to be more the go with, with, with uh, people who are wanting to um, avoid having to look at uh, particular awards or, or, or looking at systems of having to pay over time, et cetera. So I think, I think also because they've run out of things to negotiate, and that, I know that sounds a bit odd, but once you've, you know, there was always on the preface when it first started back in the sort of Keating Hort days that you'd, you'd get flexibility and improvements and in return for that savings, you'd pass that on to your employees. And I'm a big believer in, in that's how you've got to negotiate that for an employer with your employees. You say, okay, well, what savings can you bring to me? If mm. you bring that savings to me, I'll pass that on to you. You can't just say, oh, I want 5% or, you mm. know, in the current climate. So, so I think they're running out of things to, to bargain on because they've given a lot of it away, um, the inflexibility. So uh, um, I think you're right, though. You know, it does seem to be less of those. And I think the stats do show that um, if you look at the Fair Work Commission, they, they are approving less of those each year. Mm. So tell me, what do you see if you reflect on, I suppose, 2019 versus 2020 and 21, what have you seen as the major impacts in your space around COVID? Sure. Oh, well, initially, it was just um, a flurry of activity. I'm sure you saw it too, Natasha, that of people saying, what do I do? Um, and, and we were sort of learning as we go because we were listening to uh, 
you know, the, the national cabinet reports from mainly the prime minister about what they were doing and how they were helping. But originally we had to sort of work within the framework of the Fair Work Act um, and either have, is there a stand-down provision in the contract? Is there a stand-down provision in enterprise agreement? If not, use the stand-down provisions potentially in the, um, uh, the Fair Work Act. And, and that was a lot of advice that people hadn't had to do before usually. And it was very hard to use those provisions. I think, you know, most of the nation was looking at what do we do if we can't gainfully employ somebody. And then luckily JobKeeper came in and that then alleviated the concern to have to stand people down without pay or make people take annual leave. Um, and people, even before that, were looking at sort of, and I was suggesting sort of um, cleverer ways to do it. Like we were saying, what about we agree to work, uh, you know, four-fifths of the week? And then that was a natural way to reduce wages and as long as the employee consent the same you can do that of course then reduce the salary four-fifths and mm. they have more time without working um, and there's sort of creative ways we did but JobKeeper definitely helped it, it then kicked in people then changed to that regime um, and, and I found that you know working from home was a real challenge um, I personally found it very difficult as well I'm sure a lot of people did um, you know that's not something again being an old sort of dinosaur I think I'm sort of used to going into my office and and having that as my workspace and so to not have that ability was quite difficult and, and I know my staff uh, found that difficult as well and that's, I think the key thing there is and I know some of the questions you might ask a bit later is you know as long as from a work health and safety perspective if you're able to obviously minimize that risk you can never eliminate it mm. um, and and create a work environment um, then you can get people moving back to work and I think that was a real challenge a lot of workforces were saying well what's the balance between what the, the new norm might be is they keep calling it working from home versus mm. um, at the office. And I'm still a big believer of the, you've heard the, the water cooler effect. Um, yeah. We do have a water cooler outside my office, so I can say that. But, but you know, people talking around and, and, and bouncing ideas off each other. I think you can get some of that from Zoom, but I don't think you necessarily always get the same uh, cross-fertilisation as you would if you're face-to-face with the person and you're there through the whole day with the people. Yeah, I totally agree. It's interesting, though, because I started my business as a, a remote business uh, almost coming up for 10 years ago. And uh, so it's always been the way that our people work from home or the client site. So this was always our normal. But what I will say is that we get together every quarter and our team for a whole day and we go out for dinner and we fly in everyone from everywhere. And that is one of the team's most favourite things that they ever do. That yeah, right. connectivity is, is so important. So I yeah, absolutely right. am a great believer in we can do a lot from uh, home as long as we're set up well for it. Yes, uh, but that connectivity where humans um, absolutely needs to be there. So, so that work from home policy, sorry to interrupt, that, that's definitely something that's been you know, a huge rise. It's gone from being you know one or two of those to you know, I don't know how we've done, probably 60, 70, you know, so a lot. Uh, and then understandably, as you know, all the, the ins and outs, you, if you've been doing it for 10 years, Natasha, you're, you're well ahead of the, the eight ball there. But, uh, you know, it's it's things like having a safe work environment, having a, a, an ergonomic chair that's not going to be causing back problems later on, having things that are going to trip over, making sure that, you know, even the simple things like your layout of the, of the desk and the computer, as you said, all the right equipment, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So that's those sorts of things. You're absolutely right, and it's even things like, and one of the other guests, which I would encourage everyone to have a listen to, is Janine Fulton, who talks about um, domestic and family violence. Yeah, you know, right. we effectively moved all these people home to hang out more with their perpetrator. So you know, trying to manage that, and I think one of the things we're seeing in our space is 
we were very successful as a country um, moving to working from home overnight. But yeah. what we now need to do is, all right, how do we do this for the longer term? An example being, how do we work when we think somebody's not performing in their job? How do I performance manage them remotely? Because I'm, I wasn't great at it even when it was face-to-face -face, and now I don't feel like I understand whether they're doing what they should be doing when they should be doing it. So I think- Yeah, very good point. On that point too, that's something that I've seen a change. In pre-COVID, there is no way in the world I would have suggested somebody do a performance counselling process by Zoom or Teams. I just, I had done a few Zoom and Teams meetings, but, you know, I've probably only done sort of, you know, 20 or 30 of those. And and now you do, you know, that a week sort of thing as a minimum. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's become the new norm. And I think that is one of the things that that is quite good because I didn't have to say to clients, uh, I'm sure you did probably too, Natasha, with mm -hmm. some of the advice, if, if you didn't want to have a scene, so to speak, when you're dealing with a person in discipline matter, maybe you need to go and hire a, a neutral place like a, a conference room at a hotel, which you wouldn't be wanting to do at the moment, particularly with quarantine at those hotels. But, you know, or some neutral place, take them to a coffee shop. I know that sounds bizarre, but somewhere where it's separate so that you don't make a big scene at the office. Yeah. And now I've got no problem saying, you know, the, the person and their witness and you and someone else can be all done by Zoom and Teams. I think that's the, the new norm. That's acceptable. And I think to take that one step further, I think in some ways people find that easier because it's that physical distance removed. So yes. a person, I think, would be much more inclined to sit there and scribble notes or to pause rather than feeling like they've got to react in that moment if they're sitting around a conference table you know face yeah, true, to face yeah, you know they yeah, the only thing i worry about is the recording you know because there's a recording yes. device and i think as long as you um say to the people look we don't want this recorded that that would be my preference i just think um recordings in those situations can be then used and taken out of context and a whole range of things so i think mm. the old-fashioned way of taking notes Scribes. and having people scribing exactly and uh, you and I are old enough to know that and, and, and to then have people's opinion of what was said rather than people saying, listen to the tone of Nick's voice, you know, he's raised, you know, and that sort of stuff being the emphasis rather than the substance of what's discussed. Yeah. Mm, that's really good, uh, really good thinking. So let's talk more about the government's omnibus legislation. What is this yeah. proposing to do? And what yeah. do you see as the, uh, I suppose, the potential implications for this, Nick? Because I think you know, this is bubbling along in the background. I think if we think about it from a macro level, you've got people starting to talk about work choices again yep. and get people all in a flurry. Yep. Um, what What are you seeing? What is this attempting to do and what do you think it might look like? Yeah, so thanks. I've actually, uh, and you, I'm sure you'll put a, a link on, on this uh, yes. podcast. I'll put some sort of notes together and um, some slides that might be useful for your listeners. Um, and, and obviously, being it's a bill, it's still, it's not legal advice. I'm sure people know that. And it's obviously could be changed at any stage. So just sort of make that disclaimer that this is, is how it is today, because it even... Um, change this week as we we're talking about in the green room before Natasha so um, the sort of main areas that we're seeing obviously with the omnibus bill um, are this there's a definition of casual employee um, um, which is so sort of six areas I'll start with so the first mm -hmm. one's that casual employee and that's obviously trying to uh, to overcome the problems which is currently before the High Court in the, the work pack scheme decision, which, um, you know, you and I, Natasha, both know that when you advise people that they're a casual employee, as long as they were uh, genuinely a casual employee and you're paying them a higher rate, that always incorporated um, annual leave. 
And of course, um, Workpack has thrown that out the door and said, no, that's not correct and they should be entitled to it. So I think it's a bit more of a balancing of what, I don't, I don't think that's wage theft. I heard people say, oh, it's another form of wage theft. I don't think it is. Mm. I think it's always been uh, back when the old annual holidays act was around, it was always one twelfth. It was specifically stated in state legislation. I think it was an error of the Fair Work Act when they drafted it back in 2009. Mm. They didn't say that the annual uh, annual in the awards or, or anywhere in the Act that the loading incorporates annual leave. Um, but that's always been the requirement or the understanding, I was going to say, of employers employees. So I think that's probably one of the less controversial ones, fixing the definition. Mm. My only concern about it is it creates the casual employee from the start of when you uh, start the employment contract. And that's the next thing, the casual conversion rate. So there's still the requirement, like there is under already under many awards, that after 12 months working regular and systematic sort of hours, the same hours we can work out that you're required under some awards, as you know, um, to offer a, a permanent employment. Mm -hmm. This is, a, this is a, a broader definition, which allows even the employee to put their hand up and say, hey, I'd like to change to casual. And it's only a six-month period of being regular and systematic. And there is still some provisions in there that allow um, the employer to make uh, an exemption and say that uh, there's reasonable grounds to refuse it. Um, I think one of the problems with that is that though it's a one-off. So once you've got that 12 months in and you've either the employer or the employee offers it and then it's either rejected or the employee says, no, I don't want to do it, you don't then re-look at it and you might have another 10-year relationship from there on. I'm not saying it should be every year, but it, it, the relationship could change and the relationship could then be very much permanent from there on. So I think that's um, probably one of the problems with it. Mm. I know it's trying to do, but I think it, um, it probably needs to balance a bit further back towards the employee. I think it's probably shifted a little bit too far to the employer if you look at it from that situation. Um, one of the other things as well is this award simplification, and there's 12 awards that have been identified, and they're the ones that they regarded as being sort of affected mostly by COVID. Um, and I've got a list of them on, on the slide, so I won't go through them, but they cover things like um, the restaurant industry, retail, hospitality, fast food, uh, commercial sales, uh, licensed clubs, things like that, seafood processing, et cetera. And what it does, it allows um, employers, employees to, as long as they're sort of looking at um, assisting in, in not being constrained by award provisions, so allowing a bit more flexibility on um, part-timers. And, and they're working at this, this new minimum of 16 hours. And so they can work more hours than that and be paid a flat rate. Mm. So that's caused quite a bit of angst, understandably, because prior to that, obviously, if you work 16 hours, that was your set hours. Anything over that was quite clearly overtime and paid a penalty well rate. And, and so that's allowing these awards to um, require, you know, allow a flat rate. I think Sally McManus called it the part-time uh, flexibility or casual work by another name. So mm -hmm. it's been sort of attacked like that. It's only those 12 industries, so it is quite specific. So it's not going to be um, broad reaching, but um, and interesting enough on 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 the um, award simplification, the next one is the uh, enterprise agreements, and you might have seen that there's been a bit of a back down um, early this week after Labor and the Greens um, have been obviously totally opposed to it, but also One Nation and some of the crossbenchers, they were we're going to allow um, a bit more flexibility in the boot test, the better off overall mm -hmm. test. They've, um, it seems like the Morrison government's backpedalled on that somewhat and are not going to push ahead with that. There were some of the changes they allowed temporarily through COVID and they're going to 
allow those to continue on um, for longer, but they've, they've backpedaled. There is still, though, a requirement to push enterprise agreements through within 21 days rather than a six-month period, so that would speed things up a bit um, and allow sort of greater discretion for sort of errors and things like that. So um, I think hopefully maybe the, the issues with the boot test may be enough to swing some of those cross benches. I suppose we'll, time will tell on that how that goes. And then the fifth area is this new framework of um, compliance and enforcement. Um, and, you know, that word I used before, I don't really like using it, but it is looking at wage theft. Mm. And now they're looking at uh, there's new uh, provisions of the Fair Work Act if, if it gets in, where deliberate and systematic pattern of underpayment, where you can get um, uh, up to four years prison for somebody who's uh, maybe regarded as uh, being a director or directly responsible for it. Um, and, and there's a huge amount of penalty units um, or fine about to, you know, $1.1 million for an individual and up to $5.6 million for a corporation. So quite substantial um, changes. And they've also boosted some of the civil penalties um, up to sort of roughly about $20,000 for individuals and $100,000 for corporations. And larger businesses even sort of greater than that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a pretty interesting um, um, regime. Some are saying it's been set a bit too high. Um, and some are saying it might be too complicated, but I suppose time will tell. One other thing, really important point on there too, is there's an increase to small claims. You and I both know $20,000 yeah. for uh, underpayment claims was the small claims. It's going to be increased to 50000 which will make it a bit easier for employees, I think, to cover, recover lost wages, superannuation, and it'll probably cover a majority of you know, employees' entitlements. Obviously, still middle to senior management would be probably over that, but it'll allow a lot more to, to more easily claim those that process um, through the courts. And the last one is the Greenfields Agreements. Mm. Um, as you know, it's only a three to four year period currently. They're going to increase that to eight years, which is a very, very big change, mm. um, but it can only be applied to major projects. Now, they're, they're at $500 million or more, so that's um, very substantial, or $250 million if the project's deemed in the public interest. They're still very high projects, so I imagine there'll be things like uh, the Metro in Sydney or there'll be, you know, building uh, stadiums or whatever, something that will take a significant period of time. They can um, lock in a Greenfields Agreement um, and in the sort of, increase, I suppose, allows a bit more increased security for investors and um, obviously once you've got an enterprise agreement, it's not supposed to be industrial action. So... Um, yeah, look, I think um, there's some quite interesting changes there. Um, I think maybe the, the most controversial has been taken away, and I think um, it might mean the passage goes through more smoothly than, than what would have happened earlier this week. What do you think is the rationale behind bringing these changes in now? Well, I think there's been, um, you know, some flexibility used during COVID that people have um, quite enjoyed using, and, and the, the example is you know, the ability to be able to get people to do something that maybe before, oh, look, sorry, you know, Enterprise Agreement Award says you have to do that, or my contract says I'm not going to do it. But I think people have been more accommodating. So particularly in those industries where, um, you know, having a part-timer and being able to pay a flat rate and allow them to, as long as they're not working more than the 38, pay that flat rate, that'll definitely help a lot of those industries through that time. So I think there is a bit of a, you know, this is a way of the employees helping the employer through a difficult time. I think the casual conversion is is one because of the, as I said, the work pack scheme case. Yeah. That's clearly what it is. And there's always another case more recently. So that was a labour hire case. But I think it's trying to rebalance what was, um, I think, right, probably right at law. But morally, I think, you know, as I said before, my view is 
everyone's always thought that the casuals do not get annual leave and that's why you pay a higher premium. So yeah. I think some of it's balancing that. And then the other changes are some of them are, are just probably you know, making sense to, to, uh, to assist in areas that people have complained about, both uh, on the union and, and employer association side. Mm. The other part that is particularly of interest and, and to use the words we're not happy with, but wage theft, I think one of the things we're seeing is that small to medium businesses in particular are really struggling to get those pay rights, uh, pay rates right and the classification under the modern world. So much so we've actually developed some training in this area because yeah, right. I think often it's um, poorly done. People are just sort of pulling a figure out of the air and going yeah. that without realising what the implications to that are. So um, I, I've seen that sort of sense of trying to tighten it up and trying to get more compliance and, yeah. And I think they keep throwing more at it because their view is that it just needs to be changed. It needs to be fixed. Well, as you said, it's it's big corporations with huge HR departments who are making these mistakes. Um, and most of them tend to be exactly right around that sort of middle management um, where you call someone a manager, but they're not really a manager. And they say, well, because we're paying him or her a salary, we can, um, you know, work them weekends and not pay penalty rates. And we know that's just not right. Mm. Um, and particularly if, you, if, the, if, as you said, you're covered by a modern award, you just cannot do that. You might be able to put an annualised salary in and then look at how that compares as a whole, but the people weren't being paid enough. And, you know, big corporations like, you know, the Woolworths and Coles and, you know, that obviously went through all the, the service stations, 7-Eleven and, and, and the like. And, and you know, it, I think there's banks, it's, it's been through every sector, really, that cleaning, cleaning is a real area. Oh, it's a know, real um, problem. People are contractors. We all know that's another minefield as well. And I think even the gig economy, things are sort of catching up a little bit with them. And so unless they legislate, I think, um, you know, that um, it's a whole other topic, I suppose, the gig mm. economy and Uber and whether they are really employees. But there's been a few cases that the, the TWU have run uh, against Uber Eats and they've settled those rather than have a decision. So we were sort of none the wiser on that. Yeah, and watch this space. I think yeah. that you've raised another good point with that working from home. One of the challenges is, again, around those awards is I think some of the people I'm seeing are struggling to put the boundaries around working from home. You know, I think they're loving the flexibility, but the feedback I'm getting is I'm working longer hours. And I think one of the challenges is they're around overtime. You know, so if George logs on at nine o'clock, is that now overtime? Yeah, it's outside those standard hours. Do yeah. you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, no, it's a very good point. And, and I think some of, the, some of the other things that the awards have, which are quite um, rigid, in other words, minimum hours for a casual are no longer applicable from work from home. So, you know, whereas before you'd have a three hour engagement minimum for casuals, that was so that, you know, if you travel an hour and a half to get to work, it was worth your while rather than working an hour, you had three hours work. And then go home. I had a particular client who had people who were, you know, on the campus and didn't have to travel, and they were wanting to do in between lectures um, some work, and the the award didn't allow them to do that. It's a good example of it being not really purpose built for what the circumstances were. And the other side, flip side, as you, as you quite rightly say, people might decide to sleep in, wake up at twelve o'clock, and work till nine o'clock. Now, under that, that's an afternoon shift. That's not really something that. Um, you know, the, the employer might want them to have, you know, otherwise been a day shift person and there might be a penalty rate. So their, their actions in doing that might cause um, a liability to the employer without them realising it, even though there's a request to do the work 
uh, within the span of hours or as you said work longer hours mm. i found that was one of the pitfalls i found i found i was logging on just the same time as i would from traveling and i was still nine o'clock at night still on the side my boundaries weren't there so it's a difficult one and then that, that would open up a whole can of worms from a work health and safety point of view too i think so nick in the hr space we're seeing that employees are asking for lots of new and very different arrangements such as permanently moving to the country and wanting to retain their role or working from home permanently when the majority are returning to the office and so much more. Are you seeing this change? And if so, how do we need to manage this from an employee and an employer perspective? Um, yes, I am seeing it a little bit. I mean, obviously, um, depends on purely on the industry. Some jobs, this cannot be done from home. So um, do quite a lot of work in the health space and uh, healthcare, and obviously uh, subject to people, you know, unless having visiting to homes anyway, if someone is a, in a nursing home, then the work has to be done, mm. uh, the caring in the nursing home. So work from home is not available. But you're right, people, I think the COVID has opened eyes to people who have realised, well, maybe I can do even part of the, the work at home. Um, and so where the, the work allows it, um, those we talked about before, work from home policies are really important mm. um, and a checklist uh, of, of what's required. Um, so we're doing quite a lot of uh, helping companies uh, looking at ways of trying to implement a work from home policy and having just a brief checklist. So, and, and then it allows, you know, ability to uh, either purchase something themselves or get purchased for them. So they have screens at home um, and are able to sort of transfer quite easily between the two, two mediums. And it's it's so uh, telling too, because I can remember when COVID first locked down, I had a meeting over Zoom as we did with someone and um, you could see her, she was a flatmate much younger than us and she had a flatmate situation and they were all crowded into the lounge room with these makeshift desks in Melbourne yeah. trying to work, you know, with all this background noise and very challenging for them, all young professionals yeah. Yeah. typically consulting and it was really difficult. Yeah, look, look, definitely. And I, I think the distractions and, you know, obviously there's homeschooling and there's a whole range of things. I think if the balance is is right and the job allows it, um, then, yeah, look, I, I think the, it's really opened our eyes to the fact that that, that can occur. And, and people are saying, well, gosh, you know, housing prices are going up and up. Um, do we really want to um, uh, want to make sure that, that that's something that we want to stay in Sydney for? Or can we go out to the country, as you said? Mm -hmm. And I can do that job from the country, but then come once a month in for the, the meetings or whatever is needed. Um, so I think there will be, a, there is a change. Am I seeing it? I'm not seeing it as much as I thought I would see it. Um, some industries though, yes, there is, you know, they've always allowed remote working. And I think that's really greatly increased and reinforced. Mm. Would you see a change of contract where somebody's agreed to, or an organisation's agreed for someone to work permanently? Uh, yeah, I think, I, think it, I think it changes the shift, Natasha. Mm -hmm. You know, usually the contracts would say that you are required to be located at North Sydney or the Sydney CBD mm -hmm. or any other location that the employer decides from time to time. So it's always sort of weighted towards the employer. And that's an area that I always, if I'm looking at a contract for an employee, you know, say, well, that's something you want to say, the three Cs. It's got to be comparable, you've got to mm -hmm. consult, and you've got to get consent where possible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you'd, you'd want that it flips it on its head, doesn't it, with work from home, mm. because it says, you know, you your location will be X, North Sydney, Sydney CBD, but the company recognises you can work from home and work from home 
um, will occur and you have to put a, a, a time frame where you say well, by agreements or whatever. So it changes the shift back to the employee setting where they're working from rather than the employer insisting where they work from. And I think that's where we're seeing some slight balance, you know, moving from the employer to the employee, especially if we want to attract and retain great talent, then we're, then we're going to be more open to that sort of stuff. Yeah, All right, let's, let's talk about what do you see are the implications of the need to manage these discussions and negotiations for organisations and their managers? And I refer to the point that I think some employees are particularly good at stepping up and asking what they want, yeah. others not so good. What advice yeah. would you have there? Yeah, it's a hard one, isn't it? It's um, um, how you implement it. Well, I think you know we've, we've been forced to have that discussion. So, so I think the hardest bit was, well, how do we start the process? I think mm. it's already been started for us, which is at least a, a positive. Mm. And so now it's all about balance. I think is the key. So I think as if I'm advising an employer, I'd say, well, what works for you? If you think um, your workplace has hot desks, for example, well, you're not going to be able to have everyone in an office that day. Um, if, however, you've all got offices, um, then that's something different. And you can maybe suggest there's a minimum number of days you'd like them to come in and they can decide how many other days they want to work from home or vice versa. If it works better working from home, there's at least a minimum of one day a week coming in or whatever it might be. One of my clients is an interior architect and uh, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're having a huge boom because they've gone through the process of the last 15 years um, hot desking and lockers mm. and all those sort of um, bean counter things that, you know, per people per square metre was tramming everyone in and not owning your own desk to now moving back to the old-fashioned way of having offices and space and, and all the rest of it. So redesigning back to the old way of, of, of uh, um, you know, the offices used to be. So, so I think balance is the key. And I think if you're an employee and you wanted to raise it with your employer, you'd say, well, look, it's worked. Look at my productivity for the last eight months, 10 months, um, this time last year, and I, I've proven I can do it. I think there's some businesses, though, that have proven that it hasn't been that successful, mm. and that's another way to have that conversation. Well, look, I expected you to maybe work a little bit harder, and I found that I've been the one who's been working hard, and that's not really working for me. So how are we going to make this a win-win situation? So you mm. can use it either way, I think. So what are the employer's legal obligations? Do they have to say automatically yes to all of these when they're... No, they don't. Hmm. Um, you know, obviously, the legal obligations are, um, first of all, as we talked about before, um, there are work health and safety requirements. So if someone to come into work and be... And, and there's uh, an outbreak, like we've had these clusters... And if the advice is there's a, you know, particularly in the industries, restaurants, et cetera, you've got to wear um, face masks the whole time. And if it's unsafe, then, yeah, quite clearly the, the employee is not required to come into work and maybe it does need to be done from home. If, however, though the inherent requirements require the person to come in, then the employer has a right to say, look, no, I do need to do this job for these reasons to come in. Um, However, there is a, like there is a requirement, uh, flexible work arrangements, you'd be well aware of those provisions, mm. Natasha, that have been in the Fair Work Act for some time. They're more designed for people wanting to work uh, less hours and, and it's often designed for people coming back from parental leave, maternity leave, paternity leave. Um, and there's a requirement, as long as there's reasonable business grounds, you can say no to those things. Mm. So I think that even though that's more inclined for 
changing your hours from full-time to part-time or more flexible, those um, arrangements can also be looking at for work from home situations as well. So we touched on it before. Are you seeing any shift in the power towards employees versus employers? Or do you think it, do you have a view on what it's typically been? Has it always been that way? You know, I think it has shifted towards employees. Most definitely. I mean, they've dictated more so when they came back. Um, I don't feel safe. I'll come back when I can. Um, You know, I, I know our office personally had a, you know, to try and make it safe, making people, our people to travel after different hours so that wasn't in the peak hour. Um, but I think, you know, we're sort of, a lot of it we're learning as, as we go, aren't we? I think, mm-hmm. I don't think there's been one transmission that I'm aware of on a public transport. So that was the real uh, concern that we all had is someone's mm-hmm. going to catch it from catching a bus train sitting too close. And I think, you know, by minimising that risk by having, you know, at least in New South Wales, I think Victoria... And a lot of the states, other states are, are the same. You have to wear masks. You are minimising that risk. Um, the requirement to go outside of, you know, the, the transit hours is no longer a sort of a work health and safety issue. If yeah. someone though has a particular phobia or fear or, or you know, is, is um, claustrophobic, for example, and they have a fear of travelling, then you've got to work with them and say, well, what what suits you? Is it yeah. better that you come in at ten o'clock and work till seven o'clock so you're not getting the peak hours and if that works and the person's still doing the job um then subject to the overtime hours we talked about that should be something that we look at doing but i think there's definitely been a shift whereas before it was the exception to work from home it's now pretty much you know work from home and what what number of days it is Mm, exactly it's interesting um you know on that i think one of the changes we're seeing is obviously that shift. To, I think that that's definitely happening, that shift to that employees. Um, I drove into the city uh, last week twice. And I tell you what, there's not many people on buses, but everyone's back in their cars because yes. traffic was like peak hour traffic. Um, and I think that's how people are managing that safety aspect is they're going, well, I'm getting in my own car because I feel safer in my own car. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the traffic has got quite bad, hasn't it? There's no doubt about it. Um, I catch the only efficient transport in Sydney. That's the... Uh, Ferry, the Sydney Harbour, and oh, Clive lovely. James said that, uh, and, and they're still um, quite empty. Um, yep. So there's there's some tra- forms of transport that you can catch which are pretty uh, you know reasonable, and you know you quite wear masks and everyone does that. So I I think it's just a matter of finding that balance. If people are commuting long distances, I agree with you. Um, you can see that there's probably a bit more of a requirement that there's a um, you know a bit more of a safety issue there for those employees. So I'd love you to get your crystal ball out for me this time. What yep. do you think the new COVID world of work or workplace of the future is going to look like? What's your prediction? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'd be, you know, we'd be very rich, wouldn't we, uh, yeah. Natasha, if we could crystal ball about, you know, what's going to happen. Um, I think it's going to be a bit of a, a, a mixed balance. Um, I think it's going to depend on the industry as well. I think there's still very much um, some industries which uh, have had majority of the work in the office. Um, and I think that that will still continue in some of those traditional industries. Um, whereas other industries where that work can clearly be done now remotely and, and the COVID example showing that, that, that will, will move more towards a, um, a remote workforce. And I think, you know, it's not the whole situation where you have to go into an office 
has changed for good. I really, I think it has, but I don't think it's quite as dramatic as people are saying that no one's going to come back and you can tell that I think that's, uh, that's not correct. And just walking around the city today doesn't show that. Um, so, so, but looking sort of big picture stuff and things that, that I'd see is happening. Um, I think that the, the omnibus bill that we're talking about will make some, some minor changes. I think though, uh, if you look ahead and see that this disease, if it continues on and it's not as the vaccines are not successful, I think we're going to have some problems going forward. And I think we'll have to look at more ways to be able to do the work remotely, um, without having to come in. I think also, you know, there's going to be a bit of a minefield for, you know, employers, whether they're able to make people take the vaccine. Um, and that's mm -hmm. going to be another whole, uh, you know, sort of can of worms to open up about, again, it's the inherent requirements, but there might be religious grounds, as we know, there might be medical grounds where they don't want to have the, the vaccine. Um, and, and I think, you know, the frontline workers and people like that, it, it is the inherent requirement. So mm -hmm. there might be uh, you know, people stood down. There'll be a whole range of disputes, I think, on, on those sorts of things. Um, but I hope that we do return back to what we were like um, to a degree pre-COVID. Um, but I think some of the changes that we've been managed to do as a society, hopefully we keep those, those positive ones. Um, you know, I, I think there's been, um, unfortunately, maybe a bit too much scaremongering about what it is. And I think um, that that has been negative. And I'd like to think that hopefully... Uh, the media and politicians balance that a bit more back the other way. Um, and, and hopefully we, we learn from this that going forward, um, you know, one of the key things going to be is you don't need to travel to Melbourne now for a one-hour meeting, whereas mm. before you might be inclined to do that. I think, you know, the technology and Zoom and Teams like we're on at the moment and, and the like has, has really changed the, the business. So people can work in a number of offices like you have, your mm. entire time of your business to touch but I think that's opened up to a lot of businesses um, that wouldn't previously have had that. So um, so I think, you know, going we won't go back, but I think I don't think it's as, as dramatic as some people are making out that we'll never come back into offices. I just, I just don't think human nature is like that. We we like to socialise, we like to cross-pollinate, we like to bounce ideas off each other, and I think that's all that's going to be there. And I think, you know, relative, Australia has got, uh, we are living in COVID normal compared to, uh, you know, many of our listeners, and we do have listeners in the UK and the US and so on. Um, so they, you know, they're doing it a lot tougher than we are down here. So I'm very grateful for where we're at. Um, so my question that I ask all my guests is, and I love this because I think it's, I think it's a great shout out to great leadership, and I'm all about how do we build and, and get more fabulous leaders. So tell me, um, Nick, who has been your best boss to date and why? And if you'd like to name them, even better, because they deserve the shout out. <laughs> well, well, you know, I, I should say I wasn't technically a boss. The uh, um, Barry O'Keefe QC who put me on my own first and only Learjet and flew me to Villaroo <laughs> was pretty good, wasn't it? I mean, that's a yeah. nice way to start your job, um, but that wasn't technically a job. So I won't include, include him. Um, the, the best boss that, that I've had, um, other than the cliche that you're working for yourself, because that is a cliche, and I'm sure you'd agree with that. But um, I worked with a guy when I was over there um, at the uh, Chamber of Manufacturers, it used to be called, Australian Business Limited, um, and I really enjoyed working for because he gave me a really good opportunity. Um, uh, and he, he was involved until recently, there, Stephen Cartwright. He was uh, a really good operator. Um, I found him to be very fair, 
um, he really opened my eyes to a lot of industrial relations uh, and, and um, set me on the sort of the passion for it. Um, as for the best boss from a point of view of uh, friendship um, and leadership and things like that, um, another guy who uh, was, an, again, uh, a director of a, a company called uh, Fisher Cartwright Berryman, is then called FCB, Stephen Berryman. Mm-hmm. I found him to be a fantastic boss. He uh, believed in me at a very early age when I was wanting to go ahead. Um, I think sometimes we as leaders can see somebody who's very keen, um, has the entrepreneurial skills and things like that, and try and sort of push them down. Um, I found Steve Berryman, um, who's still a friend today. He's a lovely, lovely guy. He does his own consulting, um, so I give a yell out to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, he he uh, you know, really sort of had belief in me and 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 backed me at time when. Um, things could have been a bit more difficult in my workplace. And, and, and I really look back at that and say, wow, that was one of those moments where um, I really admired him as a leader. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, we're grateful to them too. So as we talked about, Nick has very kindly um, also shared a great slide deck, which we'll include in the show notes. So refer to there. Um, the other thing I was just going to say is, Nick, thank you so much for your time today. I always learn something when we chat. Um, and I know our listeners have too. Thank you for being such an incredible partner of Employee Matters and friend to us all. And if people would like to get in touch with you, how are they best to do that? The best way to get in touch, uh, probably the webpage, which mm-hmm. you know, obviously directs everyone. So it's um, www.salaw, as in Stevens and Associates Law.com.au. And on that, there's an inquiry number and there's an email and, and obviously our telephone old-fashioned way but often that's the best way to sort of um to get in touch with us so uh, we'd be grateful to help a subject to not being a conflict um either employers or employees or independent contractors would be sort of helpful brilliant thank you nick so if you've enjoyed this interview you will also enjoy our interview with nikki hutley uh previously from deloitte access economics and now an independent economist thanks for listening and if you did enjoy this episode then please do remember to subscribe i'm natasha hawker and remember your employees really do matter i hope that you've enjoyed today's episode of employees matter podcast with natasha hawker For episode notes and other resources, please visit employeematters.com.au forward slash podcast. While you're there, you might like to subscribe for future episodes so you can continue to thrive during the COVID-19 crisis. Please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends, team and business network. This podcast was proudly brought to you by Ring Central.